I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. It's just past high summer here at the gallery, which means the greenhouse is in full bloom. I have quite a variety of medicinal herbs which are almost ready to harvest, folk medicine being a passion of mine, you see. There used to be a time when I got the chance to work on truly interesting cases. Prolapsed eye sockets, or perhaps cleft jaws, you get the idea. Finding the ideal combination of herbs to combat those sorts of cases took true artistry and finesse, take my word for it. It's simply not the same, tending to Twitter thumb and TikTok elbow. Yet I persevere. Our exhibit for this evening comes from author A.J. Brennan, a Washington, D.C.-based speculative fiction writer and National Novel Writing Month obsessive. Her work has appeared in The Arcanist, Wizards in Space, and Translunar Traveler's Lounge. She can be found on Twitter at AJBWrites. It will be read for us this evening by Ms. Jasmine R a narrator, writer, and poet whose brain thrives on chaos and caffeine. She lives in a rural corner of Belgium with four dogs, two elderly horses, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she is writing. Find out more about her and her work at jasminearch.com. Dorothea Defies Convention Written by A.J. Brennan Narrated by Jasmine Arch My sister Violet says she doesn't give a fig for convention. I tell her that in a village this size you must. If you slight or startle or scandalise anyone, they will still be talking about it in thirty years. Violet says this is nothing to her. She intends to go and live in Paris as soon as the monster Bonaparte is defeated. Taken up with this beguiling thought, she stops listening to me. If she ever truly listened, I would tell her that while all ladies must consider their reputations, those that are magically inclined must be particularly careful. Neither Violet nor I is old enough to remember the witch burnings, but our grandmother told me of them and always reminded me to be grateful to the village for taking us in. We have been careful since then, and when the new laws came in and the new customs and conventions with them, we abided by them. I also do not tell Violet that if you must defy convention, you should do it for something significant, something that will change your life forever. And be clear-eyed about the consequences. She must learn that for herself, as I did. I send her to gather herbs in the garden and she stalks off with a muttered, Yes, Dorothea, 
If you plan to live in France, you should attend more to your French lessons. I call after her. I watch her for a moment from the doorway. It is a summer Monday morning and the countryside is at its most lovely. The rain has stopped at last and in the garden the overgrown thickets of rosemary and thyme show the benefit of two weeks' downpour. Violet has forgotten her bonnet again and she will have a freckled nose if she is not careful. I feel so much guilt about what I am about to do. I cannot imagine how I will feel when I have actually done it. Mother always said we were gentlewomen, and we are, more or less. After all, the vicar and the doctor are gentlemen, and what we do is somewhat like medicine and somewhat like religion. There is certainly Latin involved. On most days, ladies from the village and the surrounding country come and have tea and aniseed cake and tell me about their husband's cough or their daughter's fever or their own troubled minds and sleepless nights. I nod and sip tea. When the visit is over, I give them something. Sometimes it is a powder or lozenges wrapped up in tissue paper crossed and recrossed with words of power. Other times, it is a tincture in a glass bottle engraved with minuscule writing. My visitors give me some silver in exchange, and if the price of the tea and cake is silently included, no one seems to regard it. Other women come to the kitchen door and I give them packets and bottles and do not charge them for the tea. More rarely, messengers come from London, and as far away as York. I considered setting up in London after Mother's death, but the living is cheap here and our carefully maintained reputation shields us. When I look around at what I have built these last ten years, I am proud. Nevertheless, I am conscious of how quickly the years between 18 and 28 have passed. One headache powder, one throat pastille, one sight-restoring tincture at a time. The gossip and symptoms I hear tomorrow will be much the same as today's, which were much the same as yesterday's. It would be impolite to show boredom, though I've heard them all before. I know that I should not wish for change. Change could only be dangerous to us. I know that I should be grateful for all of the good things and not struggle too much against the restrictions. We are invited to the Great House every month for dinner, which is an honour, if not always pleasure. Sometimes, when they are truly desperate for company, we are invited twice in a month. We are also invited to tea at the vicarage every Saturday. The new vicar is broad-minded and likely does not burn incense to ward off evil spirits when we leave. On Sundays, I arrange the church flowers with the rest of the ladies' altar guild. They make conversation about husbands and children. I talk about the garden and the weather and listen to their stories politely for the fourth or fifth time. Every day, I watch Violet and worry about her future. I never spare a thought for my own until, one day, I receive a letter from Colonel Fitzhugh. I know Colonel Fitzhugh a little. His family has always lived in the Great House, and he returned there to recover after he came back from the colonies with a ball in his shoulder. I visited with my mother to administer spells and change the dressings on the wound. After she fell ill, I came alone. On some nights, if I had a few spare minutes... I would read to him from histories of great Roman generals that bowed his bookshelves. His sister, there to chaperone, always nodded off during the battles. My good command of Latin surprised him more than my indifference at the sight of blood or my willingness to come alone to tend him. 
I explained that I was the one who said the words of power over the powders and inscribed the necessary phrases on their wrapping. This shocked him a little, although I do not know who else he imagined could have been doing it. There were only the three of us. Mother was sick in bed, and Violet was only five. In time, he healed. The muscle and bone mended so completely that you could not tell he had ever been injured. He returned to the army, and I heard of him only occasionally through his mother and sister. This spring, he wrote to me from the battlefield and asked if I knew any strong healers fit for military service. Casualties had been heavy, and they needed additional men. I replied, telling him that I did. He was resistant, of course, but we both knew that few men were as skilled as I and those who are had already gone to the continent. We both remembered his own shoulder and that when his father was thrown from a horse and broke his skull, they sent for me and the old lord lived. In the end, the colonel accepted my offer. I cannot help but wonder if he had always hoped that I would propose myself. Why else write to me, after all? On Tuesday, Violet discovers me in the still room, making packet after packet of healing powders. I had made certain she would be out and given Ellen the afternoon off to ensure that I could work privately, but Violet has caught me out. I have prepared dozens of remedies, properly bespelled to stop bleeding, knit fractured bone and mend torn flesh. I have copied the instructions out neatly in a small notebook, light enough to carry, but I must also carry them at the front of my mind and the tips of my fingers. Perhaps I will need to make them on a battlefield. Teas for easing pain and curing fever I can already make without pausing to think. I do not know what to expect. All that I can do is prepare everything I know how and hope that that will be enough. I have seen broken bones and torn flesh before, and there have been people I have not been able to save. Not many, but some. I do not know if this prepares me to go to war. When Violet comes in, the work table is so covered in little paper packets that some have slid to the floor. The scent of the powders is pungent and not altogether pleasant, so I have opened the window to catch the breeze. I am at the window, looking out when I hear her come up behind me. I spin around guiltily. She was supposed to have been picking berries, and she is carrying a basket with some berries in it. But I notice that she is also wearing one of her finest dresses, and she looks a little too pleased with herself. I hope she has not been meeting with Tom from the Red Farm. He is a nice lad, and perfectly respectful, but I know that a romance between them cannot end happily. Whatever social advancement our tenuous gentility can offer him, his family would not allow him to unite himself to one of us. I hope that Violet has taken my hints about this and she will not force me to be blunt. That would wound us both. Since I do not wish to have that conversation, I do not ask her about the dress. Violet turns over one of the packets, reading my tiny, careful writing. She reads another. This one is to mend broken bones. And this one to heal wounds to the heart or lung, she says. So she has been listening. To my lessons, if not my lectures. She raises her eyebrows at the heap of spells. What kind of disaster are you expecting? She asks. There is no harm in being prepared, I say, sweeping the packets off the table and into a basket. She seems to believe me and to put this behaviour down to my usual fussy ways. 
Why would she not believe me? Until these last few weeks, I never lied to her. Perhaps I could simply tell her my plan. It would be such a relief to me to do so. I know, however, that if she asks me to stay, I will. More likely, she would ask to come with me, and I might not have it in me to tell her no. She is too young to understand the consequences of such a choice, and she might yet learn to live and be happy here. That would surely be best for her. On Wednesday, I visit the sick. I give each of them enough spells for two weeks. If anyone notices this precaution, they do not remark on it. For most of them, the powder or tincture itself is sufficient, but for those who require an additional spell to be said over them, I have left very specific instructions. Violet knows quite well what to do and does not need my reminders, but it comforts me to write them down. In each house, I sit and talk a little, as I do on every visit, though perhaps a bit longer than I would any other week. By the end of the day, I have drunk more tea than two women could hold, and I slosh home. I do not tell anyone I am leaving, and, except in the ordinary way, I do not say goodbye. Finally, on Thursday, three days after my last lecture on propriety, I am packing a bag in the middle of the night, knowing that I am a hypocrite. I have already sent a letter to our aunt, asking her to come down and stay with Violet. I imagine she will be eager enough to leave her grim seaside boarding house. Violet believes she can look after herself, but she is only 15 and not careful, and what I am doing will make things so much more difficult for her. I leave the second letter, the one for Violet, on the hall table. I had written her a letter of warnings. Do not set your heart on Tom from the Red Farm. Always be seen at church on Sunday. Never be hasty or high-handed or careless or rude. Be careful. Then I tore it up and wrote her a letter full of love. I hope she will forgive me and I hope that one day I will be able to apologize face to face, even if I can never come back here again. I step out onto the path. The coach that will take me to Calais is waiting at a posting house on the main road. I ask that it wait there, although it does not matter now if anyone sees me. The night does not frighten me. I have a pocketful of very noxious spells for anyone or anything I might meet along the way. I expect that His Majesty's generals will not much welcome me when I arrive, but I must go. Such an opportunity may never come my way again. Military service is my chance to see the world, yes, but most importantly, it offers the safety of a government post with no taint of hedgewitchery about it. I will have room to breathe at last. I look back. The house is Violet's now, and perhaps that will weigh in the balance with Tom's family. Perhaps when the war ends, she will forget him and go to Paris. Then I see Violet standing in her lit window. She stares down at me and sees the valise in my hand. After a moment she waves, and I understand that she is urging me onward. Thank you, Ms. Arch. And might I remind the listeners that our last general reading session for the year is now closed. There is a small chance that we may have some sort of very short themed submission windows toward the end of the year, or 
perhaps towards the beginning of the next, specifically for punked fairy tales and also possibly weird detective noir stories, visit gallerycurious.com slash fiction to learn more. That's all the time we have for this evening, unfortunately. I need to get out to the greenhouse and check on my editor, Andrew. Make sure he's not taken root again. Do come visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution no derivatives license. All story copyrights were made with the authors. Our theme song is, as always, Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. If you like this show, share it with your friends and leave us stars and reviews online. Tickles my black little heart every time. This episode was produced in September of 2020. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Do you know what my very favorite of the afflictions was? Take a guess. No, not even close. Good try, though. It was ingrown forehead. Hmm.